Okay, a question. How do you respond when things do not go your way? Do you respond with America's favorite Bible verse that's not actually in the Bible? God helps those who help themselves, right? Yeah. Maybe you know better, and you're not going to put that and put God in the equation, so you fire off the old adage, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, which is interesting in, in looking into the etymology of that idiom. But what do you do when opposition rises against you? See, because all of us have times in our life where opposition comes, knocks on the door, sits in our living room, and makes itself at home for a nice long stay. You know, we've all likely had those experiences in our life where opposition comes at us unjustly. Maybe you, you're accused of something, and, and, and you feel like if you tried to justify yourself, it would only make things worse. You feel like there's nothing you can do except pray and depend upon the Lord to take care of everything. See, we cannot avoid adversity or conflict. But sometimes that adversity feels so intense, it feels as if the walls are closing in. It feels overwhelming. It feels that the adversities are multiplying and surrounding us, as if they are submerging our head underwater. What do we need in these moments? Do we need a better plan? Maybe a creative solution or an escape hatch? Those things might help us for the day, but they will not be sufficient. More adversity will come tomorrow. Adversity is a daily part of our existence. You may have even experienced that this morning, trying to get out the door to come to church. See, so what we need is not more ingenuity on our parts. It's like telling someone who's drowning to just kick their legs. They knew how to swim. They wouldn't be drowning. If we could fix it, we wouldn't be drowning in the first place. Now, brothers and sisters, what you and I need is an ally. We need someone who will come to our side, someone who will rise up against our enemies and the adversities that we face in this life We need the Lord. We need to understand who we can depend upon when life closes in around us. And what we're going to see this morning from Psalm 3 is that that is exactly what David needed as well. For what David understood and what you and I need to understand is that David understood he could rest peacefully in the Lord because the Lord would rise up against his enemies. Like I said, we're going to be in Psalm 3 this morning, which you can find in the Bibles right in front of you on page 432. 432. And here's what we're going to consider with our time this morning. It's going to be right up here on the screen. When life hits you hard, rest in the Lord, for he will rise up. We're just going to break this down. We're going to take each statement on its own. So first, when life hits you hard, Let's read Psalm 3. Psalm 3, a psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. 
I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So this psalm, though it comes right in the beginning of the book of Psalms, is at the tail end of David's reign. See, most of you probably already know the story, but if you see that in the superscript, what he says, when a psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom, let's recap quickly that story. See, Absalom was one of David's sons. Absalom murdered one of, uh, someone who had slept with his sister. David exiles him. David brings him back. But David will not allow him into the city. So Absalom sits at the gate day after day. And here's what Absalom says. You can see this in 2 Samuel 15, 3 through 4. Don't worry about that. I'm going to read it to us. Absalom would say to those coming looking for justice, See, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What Absalom did is he stole the hearts of the people of Israel and set himself up as king, which then causes David to flee so that he would not be captured by Absalom's men. And as David flees, those who are loyal to David and to his reign flee with him, except for one who sought to leave with David, but David sends back David's counselor, Hushai. Now, Hushai was counselor for Saul before he was counselor for David. What David says to Hushai is, you need to go back. You need to serve Absalom, just like you served me, just like you served Saul. But what I need you to do, I need you to defeat the counsel that Absalom was going to receive from his counselor, Ahitophel. So he sends him back. Okay, that gives us the initial picture of Psalm 3. David is on the run. He has fled from his kingdom. See, and and knowing where David then found, found himself gives us a picture of just how bleak his situation was. His enemies were rising against him. You can, you can see what he says in verse 1, right? How many, Lord, are my foes? How many rise up against me? That, that second line is he's intensifying it. He's saying more and more my enemies are multiplying. What was once just a few, what started with Absalom and those hearts he persuaded, has now multiplied to the people of Israel who are now following this new king. Now that David has been officially displaced from power, those who are afraid to insult him when he was in power now feel the freedom to insult him because he's out of power. You know, and, and this is partly because, and this, we can justify the people's reaction partly because they actually think, they, they rightly think the Lord is behind this. But for the wrong reason. Right? They recognize that, that the Lord is the one who removes kings but they're wrong to make the final, the conclusion that they make in verse 2. Look what David says in verse 2. He says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. 
Other translations say there is no salvation for him in God. The enemies rising against David are not attacking the Lord with that statement. They're attacking David. David is the one who has no salvation in the Lord. What we've just witnessed by David fleeing from Absalom is actually God's judgment on David. Because David has been driven out of his throne, David must be guilty. He had been judged. He had been removed. The people allow the circumstances that they see to inform their understanding of how God works. David flees. It must mean that God is judging David, right? Circumstances are informing their theology. All of these signs point to David's demise. Like I said, they rightly attribute the Lord as the one who removes the king's But what they go too far in doing is when they declare that David's judgment has been rendered. And and this just makes me wonder, how often do we find ourselves in situations similar to the people of Israel? See, we look around at our circumstances and we tend to make declarations of who God is because of them. So just give you an example, Maybe, maybe you're someone in this room that's done really well for yourself. Money has come easy adversity hasn't been too overwhelming. Life has been generally satisfactory. I wonder if you look at your life and think, surely God has blessed me because I have been faithful to him. Well, here's the question. Did the Lord bless you because of your faithfulness? See, this is to allow our circumstances to then define our understanding of God. This makes circumstances define our theology. And, 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 that, and if we make that mistake, we're actually making the same mistake that Job's friends make. When they see Job put out from all of his possessions, they say, surely Job is guilty. But we know how the story of Job ends, right? And how it begins. We have that insight. That's what the people of Israel are doing. They're looking at the circumstances of David and they're rendering judgment. And here's why, because just, this is just how we tend to operate. Observation, right, what we see tends to lead to extrapolation, right? We, we see things and then we define them. We, we try and grab understanding from them. And so we, we see a life that looks good and plentiful, and we think surely God has blessed that life. And surely they must have been making good decisions. But we have to think of the other side of that question. Because what do we do... And how do we comfort our fellow church member who is suffering in this life? Hard on money, hard experiences, great suffering, and finding that nothing comes easy. Brother and sister, are they not also blessed by God? But maybe their blessing in this life is in their experiencing the loss of all things precious to them. See, we must not, as a church, make the same mistake as the people of Israel. Our circumstances aren't the result of our obedience or of our disobedience. Now, let me give a disclaimer. I'm not talking about the circumstances you bring upon yourself by committing adultery or squandering away your money on the lottery. That's a whole other conversation. I'm talking about that dark providence of God that brings suffering into your life that you did not ask for, you did not sign up for, that was brought upon you because you live in this world, because we live in this world. 
there are going to be people that we encounter that are in our, members of our church who have great amounts of suffering in this life. And can we not also say that their life is blessed by God? Our circumstances are the result of God's work of sanctification in our life. It's his work of us releasing control on this life and tightening our grip on him. But you know, it would be hard to blame David if he agreed with Israel and disagreed with me. Chased from his kingdom by his own son on the doorstep of death, all signs point to God's judgment against David. But there's no sign that David ever thought the Lord had abandoned him. Because even as David is escaping, he's trusting in the Lord. 2 Kings 16 describes David's encounter with one of Saul's, one of King Saul's descendants, Shimei. They really could have made these names easier, couldn't they? Shimei, who you might remember was cursing David over and over again as he's leaving the city with his tail between his legs. And one of David's men kind of reminds you of of, uh, the disciples. One of David's men says, David, should I take off his head? Well, what does David say? He says, if he is cursing me because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David saw all his troubles as coming from the Lord. And he also saw his future restoration coming from the Lord as well. He stood back. He looked at his situation. And rather than excusing God or blaming God, he says, this is the Lord's will. David places himself at the feet of God and at the mercy of God. And when we begin to recognize the the Lord's work in our life like David did, we can begin to understand what the proper response is to be to adversity and to suffering. See, if we agree with Israel, then our response to suffering is depression and despair. God's judgment has been brought upon me. I am suffering because I have done something wrong. But if we look to how David responded, then we can turn to the Lord and trust him. We can rest in him because he sees all of our suffering, brothers and sisters. He is not ignorant of one little bit of the adversity that you're going through. So when life hits you hard, rest in the Lord. This brings us to our second point, rest in the Lord. Let's read again verses three through six. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So David moves in his prayer from what what seems to be despair to confidence. Though my enemies rise, though they are multiplying against me, the Lord is my shield. He is my glory. He is the lifter of my head. Friends, David said that the Lord is a shield. The Lord surrounds him. He protects him. He covers him. The Lord is David's glory, which is to say that that David's glory is is not in earthly things or in, in the praises of men. 
His glory is in the Lord. And the Lord is the lifter of David's head. Though David was distraught, though he could not raise his own head, he recognized that the Lord was the one who could raise his head. The Lord would protect him. He would be his glory. He would lift up his head. David's enemies had risen against him, but David knew that the Lord was on his side. And you see, verse 4 takes us a step further because the Lord answers David from his holy mountain. And we know if you just look at Psalm 2, verse 6, just one psalm prior, David records, I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me. Oh, that's, that's verse 3. That's chapter 3 again. Psalm 2, verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So the holy mountain is none other than Mount Zion herself. And this is a significant recognition for David because in that very moment, David is recording this psalm, who is sitting in Zion? Who is sitting in Jerusalem? Absalom. But though Absalom drove out the Lord's anointed, Absalom could not drive out the Lord. The Lord answered David from his holy mountain. Because David knew who was actually reigning in Jerusalem. It wasn't Absalom. And, and, and for that matter, it wasn't even David. It's the Lord. The Lord rules from his holy mountain. He orchestrates all of creation below him. And none can usurp his authority. No hands of men can take the crown from the Lord. David's adversary might be Absalom. But David's fate is not in Absalom's hands. It's in the hands of the Lord. And I think this is hard for us to admit. It's hard for us to pray along with David that the Lord is both our protector and the one who rules over all of creation. God is both our shield and God is also the one who brings adversity into our life. Because I think at a deep level, we struggle to actually trust God. We struggle to trust that God is the one who's in control. Or if we admit that God's in control, we tend to not believe that God actually knows what's good for us. See, it's easier to to blame sin for all the wrongs that happen to us. It's easier to blame this sin-sick world when when we lose our spouse or when our children walk away from the Lord or we get an incurable disease, or we lose our job for unjust reasons, or if your life is just not turning out how you hoped it would. See, it's easier to blame sin, but but the problem with this reasoning is that it's, it's not biblical. David doesn't blame Absalom for his circumstances. He attributes his circumstances to the Lord. He trusts that the Lord brought this about. And who is David to tell the, the Lord what to do? And brothers and sisters, who are we to tell the Lord what to do? The Lord sits on his holy mountain. He is overseeing and orchestrating all of creation. He is the one who is bringing all things about for our good. For those who are called according to his purpose, as it says in Romans eight twenty eight, All things work together for good. And in this case, all really means all both the good and the bad. Brothers and sisters, nothing happens to us in this life that is outside of God's will. God is not reacting. 
God is always acting. He is always in the midst of our suffering. He takes it all and he brings it all about for his good because he sits enthroned over all of creation. He is answering from his holy hill. And this is why David can say some of the more remarkable words of this section in verses 5 and 6. He says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. David can sleep. Not because his adversaries are weak. Not because he found a great hiding spot. And not because he's in denial. But because the Lord is sitting on his holy hill. The Lord is David's shield. And the Lord will lift up his head. What David is saying is that he awakes again only because the Lord sustained him. See, it was the Lord who lifted him up, and it was the Lord who stood him up. It was the Lord who protected him. So there is such a great confidence that David can look at the many thousands of people who have set themselves against him, and he can be fearless because of the Lord. And now we need to notice what David is not saying at this point. Sometimes when we read our Bibles, one of the most interesting things to read is, is what's not being said. David is not dictating to the Lord how to save him. He's not even saying here that the Lord will save him. David's expressing a great trust in the Lord. And you know, there's a lesson here for us. No matter what's going on in our life today, the Lord is in control. You and I are not in control. We don't need to tell the Lord how to solve all of our problems Because the more that we release control to the Lord, the more peace we can have, the more trust we can place in Him. Now, see, this doesn't excuse us from the the normal work of being a Christian in this world. But what it does is it takes those stresses and those concerns which sit so squarely in our minds, and they place them on the Lord's shoulders. Say, Lord, you've got to do this. You've got to carry this for me. I cannot carry this. David's instruction for us is to put all of our cares and worries on the Lord because he's got this. And friends, this is easier said than done. I'm the first to admit that when life is stressful, it's hard to, to release to the Lord. I mean, I, I, the, this idea of, of sleeping, I mean, I've slept maybe all of three hours last night because of just things that are ping-ponging in my mind, right? You, you wake up, I've got little kids, so I'm up anyways, right? And, but I just could not fall back asleep. I could not just rest in the Lord. We're going to fail at this. It's easier said than done. But we should strive to be a people who so trust in the Lord that we can rest in Him. And we can go to sleep knowing that the Lord is in control and that the Lord will rise up. We should trust the Lord as David trusted the Lord. Which leads us to the last section of our scripture this morning, verses 7 and 8, with the section title, Because He Will Rise Up. Let's read these verses again. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. David doesn't just want deliverance. He wants a knockout punch right? Break the jaw of the wicked. I mean, he wants the Lord to take them down. 
He doesn't just want to hide. David wants the Lord's enemies routed. Well, we have the privilege of seeing what exactly happens. Because when David sends Hushai back to Solomon so he can thwart the counsel of Ahitophel, this is what happens in 2 Samuel 17. We see it playing out. What does Ahitophel do? He counsels Absalom to take 12,000 men and pursue David while he's tired and discouraged. Ahitophel will kill only David and none of his men. And what we're told in 2 Samuel 17 is that this advice sounded good. It sounded right to Absalom and to his advisors. But what Hushai offers sounds better. Hushai warns Absalom that though Ahitophel's counsel sounds good, it's not. He warns that David's not tired, but enraged. He says David is like a bear robbed of her cubs. David and his men are waiting in ambush to destroy the men of Absalom. Surely Absalom was aware of what was said about his father, that David slays his ten thousands. And this part of the story concludes with verses 14 and 15 in Second Samuel 17. It says this, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahitophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the counsel of Ahitophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The Lord was going to break the teeth of Absalom. It's going to be much worse than that. The Lord from his holy hill was rising against Absalom. David's cry, Arise, O Lord, is such a familiar cry. It's the cry of God's people against her enemies at all times and in all places. And just as the Lord delivers David from the hands of his enemies, so also does the Lord do for us. Christian, brothers and sisters, Bethany Baptist Church, With the coming of Jesus, God answered the cry of his people, Arise, O Lord. Up from the lowly town of Bethlehem came a Galilean, hated and despised by the ruling class, and by those who thought they sat on God's holy hill. Jesus rose up from his lowly estate, and he establishes a following that desires to make him king. But Jesus understood what he came to do. He came not to sit on an earthly throne, but a heavenly one. The people sought to raise him to an earthly kingdom, but but Jesus would not stoop so low as to wear an earthly crown, which ultimately led to his rejection, his eventual crucifixion, and the rising up of Jesus on a cross. Those who crucified Jesus surely knew Psalm 3, Arise, O Lord. It would have been on the tips of their tongues, but they never anticipated that what would rise up from Galilee would be the king they needed, not the king that they wanted. That the Lord would rise up, that the deliverer that they had been promised would rise up in such a lowly way. And so they lifted up the Son of God to a cross. And then they took him down, and they lay him in a tomb. And this time, it would not be men who would raise the Lord up. It would be the Lord who would raise his Son up from the grave. From the grave, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death, putting all his enemies to shame. Christian, our God answered our prayer, Arise, O Lord, in so many more ways than one. He has risen from the grave and delivered us from the greatest enemy of all, which is death. 
No matter what plagues you, no matter what sufferings and ailments you're going through, no matter what difficulties you're facing, no matter what adversities are coming your way, the Lord has risen up. He has conquered death. He can conquer whatever you are going through in this life because he has conquered our greatest enemy of all, our greatest adversary of all. The Lord has conquered death. And if you're in this room this morning and you're not a Christian, or, or you're really just struggling to grasp what's true of Jesus, here's what I want you to know. Jesus rose up on the cross by the hands of men to forgive the very sinners who placed the nails in his hands. And he rose from the dead to show that he had conquered death. And those who would remember his words and trust in him would conquer death with him. So brother and sister, if you are here and you are not a Christian, or you are wondering what does it mean to be a Christian, I implore you to look at Jesus. Look at the one who allowed himself to be lifted up on a cross, have the nails placed in his hands to die for our sake, for our sins. Jesus can pick you up from whatever hole you've dug in your life, from whatever hole you've dug your marriage in, from whatever hole you've dug with your children. May not fix all those issues. Jesus can lift you up. He can redeem you. He can give you the rest that you need because it's his salvation. So verse 8 says, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his salvation, and he will do with it what he desires. See, what David is doing is he is mocking his adversaries. Verse 2 says, God will not deliver him. David comes back and he says, from the Lord comes deliverance. Only the Lord can deliver his people. David says it was never his enemies to declare that the Lord would not deliver him, but that the Lord was the one it belonged to, and only he is the one who gives it. Church, the Lord is the one who rises up to defeat our enemies, and he has already defeated our greatest enemy, which is death. And if the Lord can defeat death, and if the Lord can make peace for us with God, what does that mean for the trials that we face? How can the good news of the gospel speak to our trials that we are going through? Brothers and sisters, we can depend upon God because he has shown himself dependable. In the gospel, we see how God cares for his people. He rose up to defeat sin and death. The Lord will not leave you to fight for yourself. He has given you himself. But rather, brothers and sisters, we can rest in the Lord because the Lord will rise up. It's the Lord who fights for us. Let's pray. Lord, you did not leave David to be consumed by the hands of his enemies. But Lord, you rose up and delivered him. And Lord, you rose up and you delivered us by conquering death, by achieving life for us. Lord, you have delivered us from sin. You have delivered us from all the ways that we seek to undermine our own existence. In you, Lord, we can know salvation. We can know the hope that is only found in Christ. Father, we pr- I pray that it is our comfort and our hope, our hope alone, 
that we would find in you, Jesus, in you as the one who rose up, conquered death, conquered the grave. God, would that give us strength today as we go out this morning? We pray in your name. Amen.